0: of passion-driven entrepreneurship. We have an exciting guest. We have Jason Sherman, and he's an entrepreneur, a tech startup expert, and an award-winning filmmaker. Jason shares with us the story behind his startup Instamore, now Instamore Discovery. He cues us in on what it's like to go from idea to a concept to a business to raising funds and all That comes with it. You don't want to miss this and Jason tells us a little bit about cryptocurrency so you definitely don't want to miss this. This interests you? Stay tuned. Welcome to Reinventing Perspectives. We're going to talk about everything from faith to business principles to family life to profitability to strategy to tactics to self-care. If you need it, we'll talk about it. I'm your host Priscilla Shumba. Without wasting any more time, Let's dive into our conversation. We have a very exciting guest today. We have Jason Sherman, and he is an award-winning filmmaker. He's an entrepreneur. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's into cryptocurrency, and he's got loads to share with us. Jason, could you tell us just a little bit about your background, because it seems like you do a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of passion-driven projects, which I can tell from your bio. But please tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah,
1: I, I find myself in the midst of multiple different industries that I tried to be an expert in over the years, whether it was building tech startups or making movies, writing screenplays, writing books, being a journalist, being a musician. Uh, Basically, anything that I was interested in, I would learn everything there was to learn about it and just kind of throw myself into it and then try to build something or be a part of the community uh, or succeed in that industry. And then over the years, I just found myself doing all of the things... Uh, off and on, like I would kind of switch it up and you know, one day I'm doing tech, the next day I'm doing film, the next day I'm doing writing, and, and like you said, cryptocurrency. So I just find myself every day doing all of the different things that I'm good at or the things that I'm passionate about.
0: Like, what did you start with? Cause I feel like if you're an, an early entrepreneur and you feel like you've got all these interests, should you try and attack them at once? Should you try and do one thing and then see where that goes? Like, how did you get started in all this?
1: That's exactly how I got started. I, I began, I mean, at a very early age, my parents, who were both teachers, uh, were always showing my brother and I how to do certain things, whether it was play an instrument or learn a language, play on a computer. Uh, they were always showing us different things. And in the schools that I went to, also, I was learning different things. And uh, as I got older, I started to find the things that I enjoyed, which were mo- mostly computers and building computers, learning about building websites in college, um, you know, always helping people with their computers and their different kinds of ideas because they didn't know what a computer was. They didn't know how to use, for example, eBay. So I was helping people sell on eBay. And as time went on, then I started helping people build their websites and I turned it into a business because I realized I can build websites for businesses and I can earn an income. So I started a business doing that um, back in the early 2000s. And that led me to find myself not so happy doing that because it became kind of repetitive so I turned to write a book and then I started to make movies and I just learned how to do these things by uh, either working with other people collaboration is is a big one uh, and or you know reading a lot about it watching a lot of videos about it um, really researching all the different resources that were available at the time to learn Every basically giving myself a master's degree in film or writing or technology or, or anything that I was interested in I would basically dive deep into it and learn as much as possible. And that just led me to find myself succeeding in different ways over and over and over again until I realized, okay, I can basically do this for a living.
0: You really learn how to embrace the process because a lot of times we're in a hurry to get somewhere and in the end we get nowhere. The patience, you know, when you're early in entrepreneurship and you're you're wanting to make that money and you're not that patient about anything, it's quite disciplined way of approaching things. Jason, just because you have a YouTube channel called Startup Essentials, I did check it out and tons of value on your channel. Um, I'd suggest anyone to check that out. How do you know that you're an early entrepreneur, how do you know that you have the right fundamentals in place to start a business?
1: Right. And Startup Essentials is actually the, the name of my course, uh, which I have on Udemy. And the YouTube channel is kind of where it started. So that's interesting that you bring that up. I realized something that was happening to me. <laughs> entrepreneurs or people were asking me for help on a variety of topics. As I kept helping them over and over again with these fundamentals that you're asking me about, I realized I was getting repetitive. I was doing the same things over and over again. And I kind of got tired of it to the point where I started making videos to show people the answers to these things. And what would happen is the next time somebody would ask me how to do it, I would send them the video. And that started, I, I started to realize, okay, now I don't have to explain it to anybody. They can just watch the video that turned into a book because the book was more like, okay, now I can write it all out into a book. And then the book turned into a course and a podcast. So like all four of them together, they work kind of as a, as a whole package and the fundamentals that I teach are, you know, anything from, uh, building an MVP before you build a whole platform or, you know, getting some beta testing in for a physical product. If you're building a widget or a gadget, um, Instead of just saying that you have a good idea, letting the market validate your idea. So finding out who likes your idea, get some feedback about your idea. So I think if you're if you really have to get down to the base fundamentals, the key to a successful startup would be figuring out your market by validating it. testing your market by launching a beta or an MVP, uh, iterating on that product or that idea or the business by changing it based on what you're hearing, and trying your best to put together a good team that can help you, you know, scale the business. And of course, from there, hopefully getting an investment or making a lot of revenue.
0: Jason, I want to take you back a little bit because... A couple of terms skip me there, and I'm sure a couple of terms are going to skip some of the people who are listening. Okay. MVP, beta.
1: Yeah, and they go hand in hand. An MVP is an, a minimum viable product. And so a good example of this that I've, I've, I've done in my course when I teach it is say you want to build a new car. You have an idea for this new electric car, right? You're not going to just go build an electric car. You're going to build an electric skateboard and then... After you get feedback on that skateboard, you're going to build it an electric scooter. And after you get feedback on that, you're going to build an electric bicycle. And after you get feedback on that, an electric motorcycle. And then after you get feedback on that, maybe then a car. So you have to take step-by-step, minimum as possible. So when it comes to a website, you don't want to build a website with like 30 features. Because you don't need 30 features to get your idea across to the market. You need the most minimum amount of features just to get the idea across get feedback, and then build features on top of that. And that's what a beta is. A beta is the process of launching your minimum viable product to the public in a small way. So it's almost kind of like a soft launch where you're not really giving it to like millions of people. You're giving it to 100 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people to get early feedback to see is the idea viable And if not, what can you do to fix that idea so that it is viable, fix it, launch it again and keep doing that over and over again until you have the sweet spot for what the people say they want.
0: I was watching one of your YouTube videos when you were talking about uh, people jumping into e-commerce right now because, you know, people say e-commerce is hot because of the pandemic and everyone's jumping online and you said Instead of just jumping into starting an online shop, there's another way that you should. I'll let, I'll let you give us the process. But you said you don't actually need to have an e commerce site right away. And you explained why. Do you mind sharing with us?
1: Yeah, because the thing is, one of the things people, people fail to cool. realize is that you can do a lot before building something. Let's say if it's an e-commerce site, for example, let's say you want to sell a certain product. Do you really need to build a whole website around that product? Or can you start selling that product in like a, a physical store in your neighborhood to see if people actually want the product first? There's no money being exchanged here. You're just putting a product in, in, into a shelf on a store or I'm putting a little sign up. That's free, right? Give them a profit. Give the store owner a profit. Um, are you able to put it on eBay or on Amazon? Are you able to put it on Etsy? Are you able to leverage other platforms that are available? The reason why I tell people to not build something is because it's not that you shouldn't build it, it's that you need to validate what you're about to do. I know a lot of people who've spent 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 or more dollars building something only to find out that nobody wants it, right? So they could have saved a lot of time and money if they just simply validated it. I'm not saying don't build an e commerce site. I'm saying if you're going to build it, make sure you do your due diligence first. Make sure that you validate the product that you're selling first. Plus, e-commerce is so saturated right now. Everybody jumped into it a couple years ago with the whole drop shipping thing, buying products on Alibaba and reselling them. It's just a bad market to be in. I always tell people, look for a pain point in the market, uh, a gap in the market. Find a problem that you're going to solve and then solve it.
0: Light bulbs are going off in my head right now when you just said that the idea of getting the market to really validate a product before you just jump in. But a lot of times you get carried away with the energy, you know, of doing things and you just want to jump right in there. But it costs you big time if you don't let the market validate that idea. So the the starting is really sounds like the biggest and most important and toughest part of everything. Jason, you've worked with a lot of uh, tech startups. Could you give us a story, your favorite tech startup.
1: Well, I mean, at that point, I would have to mention the one that I built that uh, did, it did really well. Actually, I'm using my, my coaster here for my tea. So it's called Instamore. And back when I built, so the, the story is actually pretty good because I, I don't tell it often. I don't think I've actually told it on, on any kind of interviews. But back in 2003 and 2004, I was on regular dating sites right? Like we're talking match.com, plenty of fish, even AOL chat rooms. This is before smartphones. And I realized the process of meeting somebody online was very slow. It was emailing back and forth. You're looking at people's pictures and then you have to spend all this time getting to know them, making phone calls, text messages. You meet in person finally after driving, parking, paying for food and drinks only to find out you don't like the person. So I realized there's got to be a way to to do this face-to-face right away. And I realized, well, I can do video chats a video dating site. But this is before smartphones. So again, we're talking about webcams and computers. And this is 2004. The technology wasn't that great. So I waited on the back burner until smartphones came out, iPhones came out. And I said, oh, maybe I could do it now. Camera technology still wasn't great. And at the time, I was still learning how to build mobile apps because they were brand new. I was still building websites and I was doing film work. I was making movies. So you fast forward to 2013 after a handful of tech startups that I tried to do with other people didn't work out so well because they were these co-founders that I had. I was butting heads with them. It just wasn't working. So finally, I decided, let me go back to my original idea of Instamore and do it by myself. So I learned enough to build it by myself. I found a high school student who was a good iPhone developer, believe it or not. He helped me build the MVP. The MVP got me on the news. It got me 10,000 users. I was able to get college students to use it. It went from 10,000 users. We built Android after that, 20,000 users. I was able to get into an accelerator program in New York called StartFast, which got us to 100,000 users. Along the way, we raised some money, so we were able to to actually market the the app and get users. At the peak of our existence, we got to 500,000 users. We were getting about 3,000 users a day. At the time, we were raising money. We needed to raise money in order to, to make this thing work. And we were halfway through the round when one of the investors pulled out for no reason at all, and it, it kind of killed the whole round. So we were we were right there, we were we were we were at the finish line, we were doing really well. And this is a story that people need to hear. It's it's a the moral is if you get a term sheet from investors, if you're raising money, it's not done until the check is in the bank and it clears. So needless to say, we had to you know. Basically, closed the company down because we ran out of money. All the people on my team had to get, go get jobs. And I held on to the app myself and I pivoted it into Instamore Discovery, which is more of an interest based um, platform now. So you can meet people based on their interests dating is one of them. It could be, um, yoga and dogs and coffee, and that's the things that you'll meet with the person. So that way, uh, it's, it's more based on interests, but it was great. It was a great run. It it really showed me how a startup is supposed to work. It showed me how, how to implement lean methodologies and MVPs and beta testing and AB testing and, you know, iterating, getting feedback from people. It's, it's where I learned a lot of what I've learned over the years because I, I was doing it for years. And, um, it was great. And what I what I would tell people, what I learned from it is instead of trying to please everybody because we had investors and they kept telling us what to do. Instead of trying to please everybody, focus on your core value, focus on your user acquisition because a lot of entrepreneurs, they feel like they don't need to make revenue. They need to get users. And that's a misconception. 99.9% of investors want to see you earning some sort of revenue. So I would focus on 50/50 user acquisition and revenue
0: wow that's that's a great story jason like you found a high school kid to make your minimum viable product how did you do that
1: i got lucky i um i think i posted something online and he contacted me or my one of one of the people that i was working with i think she might have knew him through a friend of the family or something it was definitely luck because he works for paypal now in california this kid is this kid was a genius he's actually the one who got me into cryptocurrency back in 2013 now that i think of it so i, I have to thank him for that one of these days
0: uh, he does sound pretty brilliant and you know the journey that you took with this tech startup it sounds exhilarating actually just thinking about having a concept and watching it come to life and then finding investors and doing all these things for the first time absolutely just how did you have like how did you know how to interact with investors because I'm just thinking if an investor came to me i wouldn't even know the first thing as to how how to negotiate with them and how to interact with them in a way that's favorable for what I'm doing for myself, for the company and everything else. Well,
1: thankfully I had some pretty good mentors. I had a board of directors. So I had these, you know, CEOs, people who have exited from companies, people who had run companies before that were coaching me along the way. And that's something that I recommend in my, actually in my book, I have a chapter on fundraising where I give you, I think like 50 of the most common questions I was asked and the actual answers that I would give. To the investors so that's a great resource right there is you know the actual questions i was getting and the answers i was giving that way because you're saying well how do you interact well that's how like you learn you you read people's uh you know stories you read people's answers and questions and that way you can prepare because to be honest with you what you'll find is investors really want to know the same things over and over again so once you know the answers to those questions it's not going to change So, you know, really, realistically, you want to talk to people who've been there and they know what those questions are going to be. And you want to learn the vocabulary that you need to use when you answer the questions, because there is a certain kind of way you want to answer the questions. You have to be very confident. You can't hesitate. And you have to know your numbers like the back of your hands, because as soon as you fumble or you mess up or you say you don't know something, that's when they start to kind of pull back. And you only get one chance when talking to an investor. You don't get a second chance.
0: At what point did you get the board together? Did you get your board together early on knowing that you're going to go after funding or?
1: That's a great question. Trying to remember because it's been eight years. I think I got the board put together Before I raised my friends and family around, so it might, it might've been the first year that I was operational. I think I, I think I got my board of directors after I launched the first version and I started to see that people liked it. So I had about 10,000 users and I reached out to the people that I knew and said, Hey, I'm, you know, I launched this new app. And it's starting to do really well. Would you like to be on my board of directors? And, you know, I was trying to raise money. So I think that they saw that and they wanted to help me. So, yeah, I think it happened, right? At, it was kind of all at the same time.
0: So when you approach like people to say, come on and be on my board, and I'm guessing this is pre-revenue or? Okay.
1: Yes, pre-revenue. So
0: what do you offer them or how should you approach that?
1: Uh, Typically, when you have a board of directors and you have members added, you have to give them something, whether it's a percentage equity in the company or a stipend. If you have money in the bank, you can pay them a monthly stipend. But normally you want to give them some sort of equity to keep them incentivized to help you. And, uh, at the same time, also you should be, you should already have relationships with these people. So like I already had relationships with these people from the prior startups that I had run. That's how I knew them. So it wasn't like I just found them and started talking to them and saying, Hey, let's be on my board of directors. No, I had known them for three, four years and three or four startups. They had already been mentoring me and coaching me, but they were never on my board of directors. They were just kind of helping me along. I finally was able to offer them a board of directors position because finally I had a company that was able to raise money and was able to start growing. So you you should form a relationship with these people first. See how you work with them, see how, you know, they help you, you know, see how you are as partners because you're kind of partners and you want to make sure that you trust these people. And that's that's pretty much the best way to to get a BOD put together is to to work with people you trust, form a, a relationship with them. And then offer them the seat
0: the power really of networking especially when you're an early entrepreneur about building those networks that later on you'll be able to draw from the relationships and the partnerships that you form the other thing i'm thinking because while you're talking about pitching to investors i'm thinking about shark tank (laughs) and i know when we watch shark tank and the investors ask you for equity and you, f- and you always feel so bad when people walk away and they've given away more than they wanted to. And you're like, no. But at the same time, you're like, no money. And they turn down the money. Then I'm like, oh, but you came for money. It's, it just sounds like it's such an intense process as far as how much equity do you give away early on? Is there like a number or how much should you retain?
1: That's a very difficult question to answer because, you know, it's a whole, we could do a whole episode on that because there are a lot of variables involved with equity. And I just did a piece of this on, I, I believe, uh, a, a podcast episode and it's in my book, in my course, but the, the the quick way to explain it would be equity really comes down to a math equation. The math equation has to do with how much value you add, how much time you're putting in, how much money you would be earning in a salary of an equivalent company and how much of the work are you going to be doing and, and how much of the idea is yours and, you know, that kind of thing. So you want to retain at least 51% of your company. That's, you know, you don't have to really say that because everybody knows that you want to keep 51% of your company because if not, investors can kick you out. So you want to retain the the, the majority of either the voting rights or the shares when it comes to giving people equity. I'll give an example of say, you're a CEO and you want to bring in a CTO, somebody, a technical guy who's going to build your website for you or your app. Well, how much is that person going to be earning in a job of equal value? Is he going to be earning $100,000 a year? Okay. Let's say your startup, you say it's worth $250,000. That's what you gave the value. Well, then he's, and you're going to give him 20% of the of the value of the company. You're basically going to give them the percentage when it comes to that math equation. And a nice trick that you can give people, it's not, you know, it's nothing wrong with doing this, but you can always offer less than you want to give them. And if they accept it, well, then they accept it. If they want more, they'll ask for more. Don't don't start with a large amount. I've had people offer me 50% of their company right off the bat. It's a huge turnoff because it makes me realize, well, they're going to expect me to do 50% of the work. But the problem is, I add a lot more value to a company. So I should be getting, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to expect me to do more work, I should be getting more than 50% is the point, but it's their company. So what the smart thing to do is if you find somebody like me, which is rare to help you with your startup, offer them like 20 to 30% of the company, but only expect them to do a smaller percentage of the work. Right. And that's really what happens with a lot of people is you'll find that they get a, a smaller percentage of the equity, they're doing an important piece of the job, but they're not doing the bulk of it. I always say, offer people as little as possible in the beginning. Even 1%, 5%, 10%, offer them as little as possible, and they can earn more based on performance. And you also have to make it vested so they earn it over four years. So every three months, they earn a percentage. Every three months, they earn a percentage, and they keep earning it as they go. You can't just give somebody an equity. And that's it, because if they don't do anything and they own that percentage, they can walk away and you're screwed. So you have to make them earn it over time.
0: Like you said, I think it's, it's a whole book trying to understand the, the world of, of investment. I wrote the book. <laughs> Startup Essentials.
1: Horse on Udemy and my YouTube channel and my book and my podcast are both called Strap on Your Boots. So it's two and two. Yeah, it's, it's, it, they, go, they go hand in hand.
0: Great value. Really, really, really great value. Because it's a lot of these things that you can fall into without being prepared and that's, that's a no-no. You need to be prepared when you when you enter into that realm. And I'm thinking to myself, when you're offering someone like 20%, 30%, and you know that they're only going to do a small share of the work, should you make sure that it's the work that is key? A,
1: a co-founder. And a co-founder, there's, I would say there's three. The CEO, which is the chief, op, chief executive officer, the CTO, chief technical officer, and the CMO, chief marketing officer, or VP of marketing. Those are the three main roles you should be looking at, and that means that you would own 60% of the company and you'd give out 20 and 20, or you could own 80% of the company and 10 and 10, knowing that you're going to give out another 10 to 20 to an investor. So the other role that I typically take from startups, it's the one that I most commonly take. It's not One of those three, it's the fourth one, is the COO, the Chief Operating Officer. The COO is a very unique role that I actually really love to have because I don't do any one of those three. I do all of them. And the COO is really kind of an all-encompassing role where you really have to know your ins and outs of the entire operations of the whole company, whether it's technology, marketing, business, fundraising, accounting, brand awareness, press, you know, press and media, journalism, social media, you got to know all of it, the operations. And that's why when people offer me a position, I usually ask for the COO role because it's the one where I can be most effective.
0: Where you can tie everything together rather than having to rely on the effectiveness of like the CMO or the effectiveness of the CEO, you can bring everything together. I I never thought about that, you know, the chief operating officer in that way before. Now, I'm going to ask you this because I know that you have come across a lot of entrepreneurs like, what have you found
1: makes a successful entrepreneur? Oof, Hey, you got some uh, some zingers here, man. These are like really they're, they're tough. They're tough because there's so many answers you can give. But when it comes to the, the entrepreneurs that I've met in the past who've succeeded, they, they know exactly what they want. So they, they have a clear path to their goals. That's important. Because some people that I meet are very frazzled. They're all over the place. They want this and they want that and they want to do this and they want to try that. And they're not exactly sure what they want to do. And that's a problem. So a clear path to the goals, passionate, you need to love what you're doing. If you don't love what you're doing, you need to get out of that and go do something else that you do love because you will end up miserable and that's not good. So you want to succeed, be passionate about it. Motivation, determination, those are very important things like you need to be able to get up every day and push yourself to learn everything about your idea, learn about your market and push yourself to get milestones, you know, toggled every day and and knock these milestones out and these these mini goals. I believe collaboration is a big one too. So you need to be able to work well with others. If you can't take in criticism, if you can't allow people to tell you what they think if you can't work with other people and you just keep thinking your ideas are the best and what you think is right and they're wrong and my way or the highway, you're not going to get anywhere. I've seen it too many times, so that's that's another big one too. And uh, I guess the last one would be to not do it for the money. A lot of people see the entrepreneurship life and they think, oh, I want to be like Elon Musk or you know, I want to be like you know Bill Gates or somebody who's a billionaire, and I can make something out of my garage like Steve Jobs and become you know, a multimillionaire. And it's so rare. People see Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and they see these billionaires, but out of those three guys, there's another 3 million that didn't make it. So do it because you love it. Do it because you're solving a problem in the world. Do it because you're changing people's lives. Do it because you're making the world a better place in some way. And then eventually it'll, it'll come back to you.
0: Jason, I can't let you go without asking you about cryptocurrency. <laughs> because I think everyone is going crazy with cryptocurrency right now.
1: It's insane. And
0: trying to get on there. But, you know, I think the hesitation with a lot of people is just that we don't really quite understand, you know, how it's actually working. You know, you hear about mining, you hear about, you know, volatility, you hear about no fundamentals, and you just don't understand. How would you, in a short, just paraphrase it, like, what is cryptocurrency? Is it possible to to paraphrase it?
1: I've done long videos about this in podcast episodes. The easiest way to explain it is that it is a digital decentralized currency. So what does that mean? It is basically anytime you use a credit card and you p- charge something on your credit card, that's not physical. There's no money, right? It's just ones and zeros. It's code. It's numbers. That's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is also, uh, you know, numbers and letters. It's obfuscated code. It's machines that are basically powerful computers that people run in their homes or their businesses that are transacting. They're doing these transactions. So anytime you buy, sell, trade, or send Bitcoin, for example, a machine is processing that transaction. And that's what makes it decentralized because nobody owns all the machines. There, there, There's millions of them around the world. You know, I have one, you have one, So how do you shut that down, really? How do you how do you stop that? You really can't because governments and banks and companies don't own them. They're owned by people. So that's kind of why people like cryptocurrency so much. It's owned by the people, you know, and you can buy it and then you can use it to spend in a store. They have these Bitcoin credit cards that you can spend your cryptocurrency using credit cards. PayPal now offers it so you can buy it on PayPal and, you know. People think that it's the future because of the fact that money is doing really bad. I mean, the governments are printing money, especially during the pandemic. They're printing money at a fast rate. Inflation is rising. So people want to hedge and, and protect their money by putting it into a safer asset that has a finite value. And, and the thing is, for example, Bitcoin, I keep bringing that one up because it's the most popular, but it you can only make 21 million of them. So once, you know, we're at 18 and a half million have been mined. Once you reach 21 million, you can no longer make any more. Unlike gold and diamonds, you can keep fighting them. You can keep mining them in, in in the mountains. But with Bitcoin, once you reach that 21 million, that's it. You can't make any And then they become even more valuable. Of course, there's another thousand cryptocurrencies out there. Uh, the one that's going skyrocketing today as a matter of fact is dogecoin which started out as a joke it's the the dog is the is the ashiba inu dog is the mascot and it's not really really worth anything but people decided that they wanted to pump it on Reddit and Elon Musk tweeted about it. And now it's quadrupled in value in one day. So people are making money on these coins, but they're also losing money on these coins because for every seller, there's a buyer and for every buyer, there's a seller. So, you know, if you're get, if you get left holding the bag at the end with the musical chairs kind of thing, you're going to you're going to lose a lot of money. So trading is very risky. <laughs>
0: It is very risky. It feels like this is the future. Like I don't think we're ever going to go away from cryptocurrency. It's only going to become more and more mainstream.
1: I agree. I agree with you. Whenever anyone tells me what they should do, I say, buy Bitcoin, forget about it. It's a long-term investment. Too many people want to buy it to to get rich. And I tell them it's not like that. It's just like an investment account, like an IRA or a stock account. Buy some, leave it in coin, like go, go to coinbase.com, buy some Bitcoin and let it sit there. Just forget that you even have it. In 10 years, come back and check your balance.
0: I think that's the way to think about it. Because I think people have been scared of by the volatility, you know, the... Way Bitcoin just kind of shot up and then it was like, oh, it's not going to go past a certain amount, 30000 then went past that and then it shot down. So if I'm thinking of it in the traditional sense of money, you think you have, you know, $30,000 and then all of a sudden you've got $20,000 five hours later, which is a little bit of what scares people about uh, cryptocurrency. What do you think about that? Do you think like the volatility is just something that people should, I don't know, maybe just accept it as the way, as a long-term thing and not worry too much about the up and down or Be in and out.
1: It really depends on your goal. If your goal is to be a day trader, volatility is going to kill you. If you're looking at it as an investment, then it doesn't matter. You can buy it for $20,000 today. It goes down to $10,000 tomorrow. You lose $10,000, but technically you don't lose anything until you sell it for cash. So so that's the piece that I always try to tell people. Let's say you buy one Bitcoin. For today, it's $30,000. You buy one Bitcoin for $30,000. Tomorrow, it goes to $40,000. You just made 10,000 in what I call monopoly money because until you cash it out, it's not real. So you have $40,000, but you still only have one Bitcoin and it goes to say $100,000. You still only have one Bitcoin. If it goes to $5,000, you still have one Bitcoin. People need to stop associating the coin with the dollar value because that's not how it works. One day, Bitcoin might be a million dollars. You'll still only have one Bitcoin
0: until you sell, it doesn't matter what they yeah, still just have you in one Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, so as long as you so people need to start learning that buying the Bitcoin, the price doesn't matter as much as actually owning the Bitcoin because the Bitcoin value will progressively go up over the years as the scarcity, the becomes, supply and demand is going to be completely skewed. You know, a lot of people are going to probably exit gold and jump into Bitcoin and who knows what, I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen, right? Because tomorrow could go to a dollar. We have no idea. But us believers are us holders, the people who have been doing this for a long time, we believe it'll go to 100,000, 250, 500,000, and maybe a million one day. Nobody really knows. All that matters is that you own some Bitcoin. It doesn't matter how much you own, just own some of it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Jason, what is the one book that you feel that you recommend to an early entrepreneur, something that you say, okay, when I read this book, this was a game changer for me, if it was just one book?
1: I have to say mine because it is a game changer. But here's the thing. If I I didn't say my book and I had to pick the countless others that I read, a lot of them were a huge disappointment to me because a lot of the books that I read promised something amazing and I didn't get anything amazing out of it. So I'm going to choose a book that I liked that was not technical. It's uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Gain Influence, or How to Influence Your Friends. It's a book that teaches you how to talk to people, how to make new friends, and it's a very good book because it helps you become a good business person, a good salesperson, a good co-founder, a good friend, a good brother, a good father, a good son. It helps you become a good person. So I, I would say that's probably my pick.
0: And Jason, my last question, what has faith meant to you along your journey?
1: It's a great question. I think part of my existence has revolved around the fact that everything happens for a reason. No matter what I do, no matter what I say, no matter my successes or my failures, I feel like something and someone has always been looking over my shoulder, watching over me, giving me strength to get up the next day and push through the challenges that I was facing, push through the the days of depression, the dark days, and help me rise up and kind of break through those walls and say, I can do this. And I feel like I had the support there. And that's important. It, without that support, without that strength, I don't think I would have made it through those days. I think that I would have given up and many, 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 many nights that I would pray for the strength to succeed the strength to you know face adversity and you know defy the odds because the odds are stacked against you and i and i have privilege you know i'm a white male so i realize that i have an advantage over a lot of people out there and so i can't imagine the struggles that people are facing out there today and they need to make sure that they can push through those challenges and i'm and i'm here to tell you no matter what gender what race what religion what ethnicity it doesn't matter all that matters is that you work hard you are respectful to people that you are happy with what you do and that you're helping others around you as you're continuing your journey if you can do those things you will succeed in more ways than one
0: Ah, oh, that's a that's a great message and um, thank you so much jason for your time thank you for sharing your experience with us i think you, you got our brains going crazy with your tech startup story uh but it's it's a great one thank you for sharing that with us
1: No problem. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. I appreciate it. Do you
0: know where to find Jason's book? Grab On Your Boots. That's the name of his book. And visit his website, jasonsherman.org. Thank you. If you got any value out of today's episode, please do share it and leave a review. Let us know how we can serve you better. Also, do check out our latest book, The Christian Entrepreneur's Toolkit. It's available on Amazon.com and also through our website, www.fm.com reinventingperspectives.com. Thank you again for taking the time to listen in. Have a great day.